Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right, well, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Hello, and welcome to our 2024 Walter E. Hoadley Annual Economic Forecast. I'm David Limeseeder, and I have the privilege of representing the Bank of America sponsorship for this event today. For over 40 consecutive years, the bank and the Commonwealth Club have come together to provide this annual forecast. I can tell you as a current board member for the Commonwealth Club that this event is very special and is a time-honored tradition for both organizations. Allow me a quick bit of history and homage. Today's event is named after Dr. Walter Holdley, a former chief economist at Bank of America, and a former president of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. We honor Dr. Hoadley's legacy, as it was he that first started this event so many years ago. It carries on today in his name, and now under the stewardship of the newly merged Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. For those not yet aware, the Commonwealth Club and World Affairs merged late last year and we are very excited for this newly combined entity, the leading nonpartisan forum in the Bay Area. Today's event is designed to provide multiple different and even at times opposing perspectives on the economic outlook for 2024. In the club's mission of providing multiple points of view, we have a diverse group of panelists that will offer different political, academic, and professional opinions and insights. The goal is to inform and ultimately let the audience draw their own conclusions as you manage both your personal and professional pursuits in 2024. With that, it is now my pleasure to introduce our speakers. First, Lon He Chin, fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution and Director of Domestic Policy Studies in the Policy Program at Stanford University. Additional, additionally, Lon He has extensively worked in politics, government, and business, and is a member of the State Bar of California. Mauro Guillen, Professor of Multinational Management and Vice Dean of the NBA Program for Executives at the Wharton School of Business. Mauro is a noted expert on global market trends and is a trained sociologist and business economist. Nancy Wallace is a professor of finance and real estate and chair of real estate and capital markets at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. Nancy is also chair of the real estate group and co-chair of the Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics. Jared Woodard is head of the Research Investment Committee, head of ETF and CEF Research and a Managing Director and Global Investment Strategy at Bank of America. He analyzes key market trends for wealth management, institutional, and government clients. Moderating today's program is Adam Lashinsky, contributing columnist for the Washington Post and an award-winning journalist that has covered finance and technology industries for more than 30 years. We have a tremendous panel for you today. Please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Well, thank you very much, David. Good afternoon, everybody. We have a, a very large remit for this conversation. It's 2024 economic forecast. Pay attention, please. Inflation, election bonanza, and the global economy. So we, we have a we have a really varied panel, and I'm I'm going to ask everybody to speak about what what is what interests them most about that bonanza of topics, and then we'll interact with each other. Um, I, I uh, about two thirds of the way in, I will take your questions. I believe you have note cards. Um, I will tell you very transparently that uh, you get points for legibility. If I can read your questions, there will be a greater uh, likelihood that I will re that I will ask your questions of the panel. So, so please write clearly. Please feel to go in as, as much depth as you like. We have a, a ton of expertise here, and I may not go into the depth that you want me to go into. So please ask, uh, you know, we have, as, as detailed political and economic 
questions as you like. Well, um, I want to I want to kick things off by uh, asking a question uh, of each of you that I know that you're interested in addressing. Um, Jared, I'd like to start with you because we'll start with the economy and we'll start at the at the highest level. Uh, you sent me some thoughts about what a Bank of America is looking at, what you're looking at for the economy in 2024. And uh, a couple things stood out to me, and I'd like you to start there. Uh, the first is that your 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 bank is forecasting about a one percent return for the S and P five hundred index, which is a um, which is a proxy for the stock market for, for many people. It's how most people invest one percent, while not being a losing year, would be a terrible year for most people. So let, why don't we start there? Why? Why? How? And etc. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be with you all. Uh, it's that's a very lackluster, unexciting return uh, for for stocks, uh, which are very volatile and risky assets to own, as you know. Um, why 1%? Well, the, you know, the, the two things you need to know, if you don't know anything else about investing, you need to know how much are, are companies earning in profits, and you need to know how expensive is the capital that they use to do all the things that they do. And what we know right now is that the the very large companies in America that are in the S&P 500 are pretty profitable. Um, but everyone else knows that too. Uh, they see the same profits that, that we do, that you do. And so they price those stocks accordingly. And so the stock market right now is trading at a pretty expensive valuation compared to history. People expect high profits. And so you kind of have to keep meeting those expectations just to tread water. Um, we just got kind of the full set of numbers. Hey there. Uh, <laughs> from Very graceful. <laughs> well done. We're talking about the stock market. Um, mm-hmm. We know that the, the profits from the last quarter were, uh, I think, about 6% on an annualized basis, which is perfectly fine. The, the wrinkle here is that expectations are high, valuations are high. And I mentioned the other uh, the two variables, the, the cost of capital. Cost of capital is higher than it's been in a long time. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates above 5%. And that makes, while not in any given month or quarter or even year, not a problem, the longer interest rates stay at a higher level, the more expensive it is to do business. I want to, and that's the big problem. And, and I'm, very quickly, I want to follow up on, on two other two other issues. So, if the U.S. is you're forecasting the U.S. to do U.S. big U.S. stocks to do about one percent, which we would all agree is would be would be tragic. That's a little inside joke from our from a green room conversation. Where do you think things? What will do better than that? Yeah, all the opportunities are in the rest of the world, and that's true for stocks and for bonds. U.S. government bonds we expect to be flat this year. If they can eke out a positive year, that would be amazing. The U.S. Treasury market, we were talking before, just narrowly avoided a third straight year of losses last year, something that's never happened before in U.S. history. All the exciting opportunities from our perspective are in the rest of the world, especially um, emerging markets. And, and when I say emerging markets, we can maybe come back to this, but we divide the world up into emerging markets and then the Chinese economy, huge, important, but a separate investment decision from the rest of you know, the fast-growing economies around the world. But emerging market uh, bonds... In particular, 12%, 13% possible total return. Uh, Japan is having a great moment right now, pretty attractive. Um, and and, and uh, those smaller countries, especially in you know, Southeast Asia, um, India, Latin America, opportunities there. That's where the growth potential is, where the strong demographics are, and that's where we, we, we'd focus. And, and, and very last thing, and then I'm going to move on from the economy for the moment, but the, the, I think one of the frustrating things for, for average people, people, for people who don't follow this day-to-day the, the way you do, is the disconnect between what you point out is, is valuation and expectation in the market versus the economy itself. You're forecasting for the U.S. economy to grow at a rate of 2.1% this year, mm-hmm. which, correct me if I'm wrong, for, for this modern, uh, mature economy is quite good. Correct. Yes or no? Uh, it's fine. So, yeah. okay. Well, yeah. Good. So, elaborate on that. You said it's fine. Tell what should we expect from the economy, the U.S. economy in 2024? Two percent—that's real GDP growth, so not including any kind of price inflation—is uh, is above what our economists think is the the normal long term capacity. Usually, we are a little bit lower than that, more like one one and a half. Um, we've seen a lot of strong growth in the past few years. A lot of that from stimulus from COVID um, and and other kind of big public spending programs. Um, we're gradually cooling off. In fact, the Federal Reserve is trying, as you know, to cool things off faster, um, not succeeding, really. Uh, and so um, these are good problems to have, but mm-hmm. uh, they're also not 
sustainable, we think, in terms of raising productivity, which is where you really see um, people become wealthier and better off, better standard of living. The, a lot of this growth that's happening, are, are, if you want a point of concern about an otherwise pretty good number, is that a lot of the job growth, a lot of the, the, the places where you're seeing that the most um, uh, the greatest increase are in things that don't really add to productivity. Uh, and, and so we don't expect it to be a long-term sustainable Quick example of something that doesn't add to productivity. If you give, if you give, we're going to talk about politics later. So let me give yep. a left-wing talking point, even though <laughs> as a, someone at Bank of America, I don't have any particular political opinions whatsoever. Right. Um, Must if be nice. you, but you're if, giving <laughs> voice to it. No, if you take a, if you take a, a doctrinaire left-wing Keynesian economics view on something they call a fiscal multiplier, which is when the government spends money in different mm. areas, right. how many dollars does that produce in the real economy? Mm. Now, there's tons of problems with these estimates. I am not endorsing them at all. Yeah, but even if you were to, the things that really raise productivity and, and wealth are things like research and development, um, investing in new technology, improving your, your base infrastructure, roads and tunnels and bridges and stuff. Mm. What does not raise productivity is splashing cash out to households to spend. Yep. Okay. You spend a dollar, you'd be lucky if you get a dollar back in real GDP growth. And that's mostly what we've done since the first quarter of 2021. Good. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. We'll, we'll come back to the economy as much as we have time for it. Nancy, I want to go the opposite direction with you, which is I want to go as uh, not, uh, rather than going as macro as possible to as local as possible. You have a distinct view on a topic that people in this room are consumed with, which is the so-called uh, doom loop and the demise of the San Francisco Bay Area and its real estate. Give us your, your, your more optimistic outlook, please. So with that really nice introduction, thank you. Um, I'm not a big believer in the doom loop for California and actually for the Bay Area in particular. Um, even the people that came up, they were mostly New York uh, economists, academics. Even they are walking back the doom loop scenarios. So I think that there's good news, bad news, as all of us know. I mean, having a vacancy rate of 35.9% in your commercial real estate is not good news. That would be a good figure for San Francisco, I think. That is exactly where we are. San Francisco. San Francisco. Uh -huh. yeah, that's exactly where we are. A lot of that is in what's called A minus and B plus space. So it is space that it's not the, the iconic buildings, although we've had some iconic hotels run into very big problems and some iconic retail malls. And I'm going to come back to that because, in fact, that's an opportunity in some sense. Um, I think the counter to this is what we've seen in the Bay Area just in the last 18 months in that and this gets back to your productivity point, just in this area, we've had 49.3% VC investment, both in seed and advanced uh, support, very advanced rounds of grants. That's a huge amount. It's more than any other place in the country. It's 41% of the entire VC invested in the U.S. economy. It's here. And it's coming on a labor force that's one of the best trained in the United States. It's highly educated, and a lot of that is still here. I'm an academic. I'm sort of more optimistic. I'm working with these people. But the ability for them to create new jobs, new opportunities, and attract capital from all over the globe is here. And there really are not any other places on the planet Earth that are equivalent in terms of its labor market. So we're building from a huge strength. Uh, it's a beautiful place, as all of us know, but obviously COVID was a huge problem. And work from home is still a perennial problem, especially in San Francisco. And unfortunately, the way we've organized space in San Francisco. So the financial district has virtually no housing. So you go to New York and you have a good mix of both commercial and residential and retail. And we really do not have that. And so we have to solve the housing problem. The housing problem is related to the commute problems. And the good news is this is where I can be really very positive, is there is a lot of activity going on when you have troughs in commercial real estate markets. New capital comes in. It rethinks these assets. And we have some very valuable assets in the form of land very close by. And that's about six malls, very large malls that are 15-minute drives away from the downtown. And they're all in play. 
and they're being redeveloped with um, housing and mixed use and high efficiency real estate on BART transit stations. And it's bringing that and then rethinking downtown San Francisco to be a more mixed use type of destination. And the other part of this is building on the labor markets here is the universities that are here. Again, unparalleled, UCLA and San Diego are now building ancillary campuses, and Berkeley and UCSF are going to do the same thing. So it's going to come more downtown. It's going to use, think of the mall that recently was emptied out with everyone horrified to have the Powell BART station be empty and dark. That's an amazing building that can be used for uh, education and labs. And it's going to happen. So it's these green shoots that I'm actually really excited about. I work with a younger younger population. But when you start looking at these malls, where already there's retrofitting going on of things that used to look like stores that are now laboratories that have literally hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital doing amazing things with battery technology. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me. I'm going to ask you a non-academic question. If you yeah. could, if if there's sort of if one, part of what you're describing is a classic instance of creative destruction, there, it is. And the, but there's also an element of of government policy, and and I agree with that. And the, but and so that my sort of very simplistic question is, if you could make up a number of the what the pie chart looks like, what percentage what percentage of this is the markets re refat, rebalancing themselves on the one hand, and what percentage of it is good is is policy moves on the other hand. So I think a good measure of it is policy moves in that the cities, even Berkeley, California, has recognized that you cannot extract huge amounts of fees and expect real estate developers to build anything. It's not going to happen. And so even Berkeley is now agreeing to more density without huge extraction fees. And back to these malls, same with these malls. The local cities want growth. They understand that growth comes with concessions and that are uh, us looking for alternative sources of capital, including things like tax incremental finance, thinking about subsidies, thinking about partnering with industry to get it to locate there and then locate housing right by it. Good, good. And I think you're talking about policy as a perfect segue to talking about politics. So, Lani, uh, please tell us what's going to happen in 2024. (laughs) Chaos. Chaos. (laughs) Well, look, I think um, uh, the focus on the economy is probably an important one because that is still the predominant lens through which uh, people view their political decisions. you know, I think there's all sorts of, of data to support that, but I think the reality is that you have a situation now where you've got these economic questions and then you have what I consider to be more episodic issues and, and what I'd describe as an episodic issue is really more of a lingering issue, which is immigration. And mm. so I think if you combine sort of what's going on with the economy with what's going on at the, at the border, that defines, I think, where a lot of voters are 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 thinking when you look at the outcome of the election. Now, there'll be all sorts of different things that will factor in for voters from different um, partisan backgrounds. But I think more or less, if you, if you think about the middle 60% of the electorate, those two issues are, are, are really quite significant. On the economy, I think the, the big puzzle that people have been trying to solve is why there continues to be so much... Um, negative affect about the economy when the macroeconomic figures are are reasonably good and, and in the case of the labor market are are historically strong. Uh and you know part of it is just a lag that always exists between macroeconomics and how people say they feel about their economic condition. Um but some of it I really think is this overhang from the pandemic. It's the overhang from period of of historically high inflation. I think those things combined have given people a really sour view of the economy. And some of that has persisted despite what are conditions that have been improving for some time. And so the big question is really when people's impressions of the economy actually catch up to what the economy is doing. And it's a race between now and November. 
And, and let's, you know, let's put a fine point on, I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a front page story on this exact topic today. I, I, uh, yeah. I, I confess I couldn't get all the way through it because I, I find these articles don't, they meander and then they, they don't, they don't answer the question. But uh, the question is, if people could be convinced that they that the economy is in good shape, then they vote for the incumbent when the incumbent is running for president. And if they can't be persuaded, they vote for the opponent of the incumbent when the incumbent is running. And, talk, and, and you have some history here. So talk about both the history and yeah. where, how you read the situation today. Well, I, I think generally that assessment is right. The, the challenge is you have effectively two incumbents running this year. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, and so it's, yep. it, 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 that, that complicates the assessment. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say the other thing that complicates the assessment, which is not talked about nearly enough is the impact of third parties or minor parties or minor, minor party candidates on, on the election. And I think this year there is reason to believe that some of those factors and, and we can talk about them individually, but I think about them more collectively will have an impact on the margins. I mean, remember that, this is an election that probably gets decided by anywhere from 60,000 to 100,000 voters in a handful of states. For the and, third consecutive time. Yeah, and I mean, that that dynamic is relatively baked into, now the states will change, right? So some states like Georgia, I think, are a little bit uh, less impactful than, than probably a state like Pennsylvania or even Michigan, where I think there is a genuine competition. Um, but in those handful of states, I think it is it is a highly impactful question how people evaluate the performance of the incumbent, how they view you know these ancillary issues like um, you know like age, for example. It's hard to factor that in. People get asked about it, but you know how honest are they really about it? And, and then the other thing I would say, which is really staggering, which in this uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll over the weekend. They ask voters the question, and, and, they, and this is a national survey, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, but they ask voters who would be better on a variety of issue dimensions, Biden or Trump. And you know, predictably on the economy, on immigration, on, on foreign affairs, you know, Trump has a significant lead. What was most staggering to me is on the question of who would best preserve democratic norms. It's basically a dead heat. Mm. And, and, and that to me is, is – first of all, it's remarkable just as a matter of politics because if you've listened to any political dialogue over the last few years, this has been a major talking point for Democrat candidates. Right. And, and this, this San Francisco uh, audience grimaced when you when – Well, you, yeah, but I mean that. that – but that tells you everything you need to know yeah. about the positioning of this year's election. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I, have, I have one more question for, for Lonnie, but I – and I – I'm going to go tomorrow next. I do want to get your perspective on this topic after I go tomorrow. But you, you, you have made the observation that a similar phenomenon happened in 2012 when you were working for Mitt Romney, and he lost because at the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, the the electorate had come around to believing that the economy had in fact yeah. recovered, and, and Obama won re-election. So, uh, you know, for what it's worth, what does your crystal ball say about how well, where we will end up? So, so there were a couple factors there. I mean, I think first of all, Obama's numbers were never as bad as Biden's numbers are. Mm-hmm. Right? So Biden's in the mid to high thirties, depending on how you look at it. Obama um, maybe hit forty one, forty two, forty if you looked at some bad surveys. Uh, so the the numbers are a little worse for Biden. He was I would a say strong candidate going into the. Well, that's the other thing I would say is that is that Obama was a historic figure from a political perspective. Right. His ability to. Uh, to articulate message, his ability to drive turnout, his ability to do a number of things, I think is frankly far and away better than than Joe Biden. And so I think that that will be a challenge for the president. Um, but, you know, yeah, look, I think the the economic comparison is a fair one. And I do think at some point people's impressions of the economy do catch up to what the macroeconomics are. And the question will become, is there enough runway? I think the answer is probably Yes. I think there probably is enough runway. Mm. I think that when voters get before them the the crystal clear one-on-one contrast, mm. I do think it's going to be very, very difficult for – let's not leave the partisans out of it for a minute. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very difficult for independent-minded voters to overlook the chaos of the four years that preceded – this administration. I, I think that's going to be very difficult to overlook. So all things being equal, it's a very complicated situation. But if the economy comes around or if the if perceptions catch up to the re, to the reality, the president has the edge. The yeah. current the current president. Yeah, has yeah the no, edge. I think I think I think President Biden has a very slim edge. And, and I think 
that view, by the way, for me at least, has changed a lot over the last couple of weeks. You know, mm. I had sort of thought mm. three or four weeks ago, I really felt like this was going to be a very difficult election for Trump to lose, quite frankly. Right. Uh, but I, I, but I do think some of that view, for me at least personally, is changing. And if nothing else, it's a, it's a good reminder that the election is many months away still. Mm-hmm. We're, we have many more news cycles. Unfortunately, still. well, fortunately, uh, for the, you're right. Depending <laughs> on, okay, I, I, I do want to come back to this issue, but first, Mauro, welcome. Thank you for being here, despite your teaching obligations. And um, you, you, you are, uh, you are the William H. Worcester Professor of Multinational Management, and uh, I want to ask you to talk about looking forward. You've been studying globalization for many years. We're in a very unusual moment in, on this subject of globalization. So would you share with us what you're seeing and what you expect? In a nutshell. Of course. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, my apologies for arriving late. I had this uh, teaching commitment until uh, 1230, so I rushed here. So I think, uh, you know, we are going into a, uh, we're getting into a different uh, stage in terms of globalization rather than what a lot of pundits are saying that, uh, you know, we're experiencing deglobalization or that there's a retreat in terms of globalization. I mean, a lot of people are thinking in terms of trade, for example, and it's clear that there are more, more barriers to trade now, uh, many of them political in the world. Uh, there's trade wars and there's all sorts of uh, issues here and there. Um, but that's only one dimension of uh, what's going on with globalization. At the same time, we're seeing digital platforms expanding around the world. Uh, we're seeing information flowing. And we're seeing something that I think is a good definition of uh, globalization, at least from my point of view, which is, okay, when I wake up in the morning, uh, I'm here in San Francisco or in, you know, whatever, Kansas City. Does it affect me uh, what happens in Ukraine? Does it affect me what happens in the Middle East? And I think the answer to that question is a resounding yes from so many different points of view. So if, if the answer is yes, then globalization has perhaps, or this process of globalization has mutated into something else, but it's certainly not going backwards, which is what a lot of people are assuming. So I think this is something that has been going on from, from a long time, globalization, with some you know peaks and valleys, um, but the process continues and it's just mutating into into something else. But to claim right now that just thinking about the election, that the American voter uh, is not going to be affected by global forces in her thinking about the election, I think it's just delusional. Because the price of oil, for example, will have a large impact. What if there's a spike in the price of oil? Uh, you know, for me, one of a lot of the discomfort... Let me answer the question also in terms of the previous question, which yeah, is please. the discomfort of uh, voters with the economy and how irrational it seems to me when the objective data seems to be really good. Well, one of the problems that uh, people are having is inflation, of course, although it has been coming down, but it's specifically inflation about food. Mm. And, well, Ukraine is a major producer of food, and we have a problem there. And we also have a problem here in California with storms and with other disruptions to agriculture. And there's a drought in, in many different parts of the world. And there are disruptions because of El Nino and, uh, and climate change affecting Chile, as you know, with wildfires and all sorts of mm-hmm. things. And so... The, there is a food crisis uh, in terms of prices, and I think that it figures really prominently in the minds of people. And may I add just one other thing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just that because of this this whole thing about Biden versus Trump. I mean, for me, um, you know, at the end of the day, especially in a bitterly divided country such as this, but it happens in many other countries around the world. In fact, polarization is like a reality uh, in many many democracies around the your, world. Your native country, Spain, is no exception at the moment. Not really. And... Um, uh, so essentially, um, it all boils down to mobilization. Who's going to be able to mobilize the voters, right? And uh, who's going to show up at the polls? Uh, and I think that's a very important question we should be asking ourselves. Is Biden in a better position or is Trump in a better position? So young people, for example, who normally would vote for Biden seem to be turned off because of um, his uh, Middle Eastern policies. And that could be crucial, right? But the same goes for Trump. So let me just ask this rhetorical question. So Republicans have already produced very low taxes for companies and for individuals. What in the world can they offer beyond that? Taxes cannot go further down. So they're without an argument now. What else can they promise? For example, on the tax front, which is an essential ingredient in the Republican coalition, right? I mean, people vote Republican because they want low taxes. Realistically, how much lower can taxes go? Is that going to be a mobilizing factor in the election? Mm. I don't think so. 
Well, I, 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 maybe I'm wrong. I'll take your I'll take your bait not on not on yeah. taxes, but take something like regulation. You can make an argument that they brought that the Republican last the Republican administration did as much as they could to diminish regulations, and they can make a case that the Biden administration is doing the best it can to re to reintroduce yeah, them. Well, and that's so, why small business for us, so we'll knock them back down again. Yeah, but that's why small business owners, for example, uh, vote Republican, right? Many of them. Why do Hispanics vote Republican? I mean, thirty five percent of Hispanics voted for Trump. When he was elected president, 51 percent of white women, by the way, mm-hmm. that's something that maybe somebody else can explain. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not saying you. I'm not just saying in general people. Right. Please. She's a 35 percent of you. Know. Yeah, I know. I know. But 35 percent of Hispanics when, uh, you know, during the, that election, uh, he essentially trashed yeah. anybody yeah. and everybody who had a Hispanic origin. Why? A lot of small business owners. And then the conservative. OK, fine. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, maybe religion played a role. But I think it's the small, you know, business ownership. They like lower taxes. Now, realistically, how, how much more are taxes going to go down? Regulations, room, maybe. You're saying room for growth and voters. I want to come back to you on globalization, yeah. but I want to get Lanhi's reaction to, you know, to this very important, uh, you know, street level question of who does a better job of mobilizing voters in 2024 and, and, and what does that look like right now? Yeah. I mean, look, every survey you read, make certain assumptions about who will who will show up. So yes, the the, the question of of mobilizing voters is critical. Um and I think you, you have to look to so for me the the proxy there is intensity, right? If you look at any survey, you can you can look like at the percentages that support X X or Y, but really the number to pay attention to is how intensely they're supporting X or Y, because mm-hmm. that intensity will tell you, are they going to show up? Are they going to change their mind? There's all sorts of questions. And, you know, I think at this point, the the challenge for, for Biden is that the key constituencies where the intensity has been there in the past, African-Americans, Hispanics, younger voters, is is not where it needs to be. So I do think that's an issue. On the question of, of what the Republican offer is going to be, um, I'd argue the Republican coalition nationally has changed a lot in the last couple of years. It is no longer a coalition animated by economics. It's a coalition animated by cultural issues primarily. And the chief cultural issue amongst them right now is immigration. Mm -hmm. And that will be the single driving issue. You're going to hear it every day. I get the talking points all the time. So I know this. This is like this is going to be the focus. And if you think immigration doesn't motivate voters, I, it, it does. It motivates voters in a really significant way. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need really a whole lot more than one issue, frankly. So is there the, win an po- election. Is there the possibility that the Democrats have won a tactical and perhaps strategic victory this past week on immigration? I, I mean, or is well, that naive? I, I think I think that um, we're going to have to see how it gets spun. It's not done, and, yet. and it's not done. I mean, it's it's a very early it's very early days of this fight. I think. Good. Maro, I want to ask you, I want to come back to uh, globalization. So um, my way of looking at this is there was a since since 1990 or whatever year it was that the Chinese were. No, I'm off by a decade, but 2001, 2001 is when they were WTO. the, the WTO. There was basically a, a multinational party going on and it was it was a really good unending bender. Um, you're making the case that. Contrary to conventional wisdom, the party isn't over, but it has changed its tenor. But is that fair? Is that what it is? That it, has, it has mutated. I mean, so so I think 2001 is actually a, a, a nice pivotal year for all of this, right? So a few weeks, just a few weeks after 9-11, China uh, became a member of the, uh, the WTO. That was in December of 2001. And then deficit with China skyrocketed and uh, all of these sorts of things. Now, this was a result of a conscious strategy on the part of uh, American businesses to essentially say, we cannot compete with American labor, right? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so we're going to create this very long, you know, thousands of miles long uh, global value chains and produce all sorts of things uh, in East Asia, especially in China. And then we're going to sell those goods here in the United States, right? So if you remember Paul Krugman, um, you know, famously said that um, they sell to us uh, poison toys and we sell them toxic securities. That's exactly exactly what happened. Right, right. That's exactly what happened. So the system was we would make things there. They would sell them 
here, uh, the American companies will sell them here in the American market, but we don't have enough money. So essentially, we would borrow increasing amounts of money from the Chinese through the mechanism of uh, you know tre- selling them treasury bills, right? Essentially, and that assistance. Mortgage backed securities. Sorry. Treasury bills and mortgage backed securities. Oh, absolutely, and mortgage backed securities. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So, so I mean, you know better than I do this this whole thing. So, so the the, the thing is, uh, you know, China and the United States became essentially the two sides of the same coin, right? And one could not exist without the other, right? Uh, and uh, that system, that way of uh, conceiving the relationship between the two largest economies in the world, you know, essentially started to fall apart uh, maybe five or six years ago, right? Then what got accelerated by the pandemic, right? right? But it was essentially, you know, that uh, at some point did, that had to come to an end. President Trump was the one who actually triggered a lot of that. But the tensions were already building up right? prior to that. And then so more recently, we've seen all of this phenomena of uh, reshoring, near-shoring, yes. and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, that doesn't mean that the U.S. and China are decoupled. Of right. course not. And as you know, Janet Yellen has been coming out repeatedly saying that it would be a disaster, yep. which I probably agree with, if the U.S. and China were to totally decouple. Among other things, before we know it, then China would invade Taiwan. If they no longer need the U.S. for anything, if we completely decouple, why would they wait to take over Taiwan, Right. But just go ahead and do it, right? And I think it's important to note that not only Janet Yellen, but the the uh, but but Xi Jinping has seems to have come around on on the issue as, as well, at least publicly. I mean, we're completely interdependent. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the two the point. Very interdependent. Before uh, I want to remind you all that you can. I haven't received any questions yet, so if you have them, please write them on the card, and I and I'll get them because I'm going to go to you all fairly soon. I, uh, Nancy and Jared, I sense that you both were interested in this topic of uh, the, the perception and reality gap of the American public on the economy. So let me take you in that order, Nancy. Yes. Well, I mean, it's obvious that what we see on the ground, I'm an economist, the good news we see with inflation, the good news we see in terms of the economy not having a real recession, which was... Sorry, did you say deflation? I said... Our control of inflation. Thank you. Sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, deflation we don't quite have. But I mean, for economists, this is very, really good news. This is a success story. Plus, our banking industry withstood a massive repo failure that brought them down in 2008. That didn't happen. Them? You gestured toward me? Yes, I did. <laughs> So I, this is very good news. I mean, some of the regulation that was put in place under Dodd-Frank has really helped. And so the major banks are in very good shape. And, of course, I think there's a lot of anger also about not seeing the people that brought us the bad mortgage-backed securities, the toxic financial products. There seem to be no accountability. And I think this accountability gap in what Americans see in terms of potentially not perfect behavior in the capital markets has really had a very negative effect. I certainly see it with my students. They don't understand why there weren't consequences for people that uh, really brought havoc to the capital markets. But I also agree that we're completely tied with China and very dependent on their capital now. So the capital flows that are now coming from China to us and also from Europe are incor- incredibly important. And I'll I, take I'll take the other side. I hand it to you. You want some little debate, right? I think I absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think the faster we decouple from China, the better. Not only we as folks on the stage, or even we as Americans, but it's better for China, and better for the United States, and better for the rest of the world. The more the changing in globalization that you're referring to something that's different, the faster that happens, the better. I think uh, it would be helpful if you would define what you mean by decoupling. No. You don't mean, man, you, I mean, you just do manufacturing and sell in the Chinese market, and we'll just do manufacturing and sell in the U.S. market, do you? No, I mean, div- I mean diversification. Okay. Okay. That's a little bit less controversial, yeah, I, I think, than, yeah. that, uh, than we should, than we should, then decoupling agree. is good. I agree with you. I mean, I think that, I, I think, I, no, no. I, I do agree that, strongly that globalization is, in fact I, I think the anchoring on the 2001 entry into world trade organization is a, is, a, is the perfect starting point because our structural view of uh, the world economy is is kind of centered on that date we think that the past 20 years of 
very low inflation, very low interest rates, low wages, low economic growth, very peaceful macroeconomy is a kind of an illusion, a kind of an interregnum. It's the party I was referring to. The 2% world, we call it. Everything, the Fed's target, 2% average. If you look at the, not the last 20 years, but the last, you know, 50 or 100 years, those charts, the average for those big macro variables isn't 2%, it's more like 5%. And so we think we're in the process of structurally moving away from that very peaceful, beautiful, you know, uh, uh, 2% world back to the tumultuous, fractious, volatile 5% world, which means uh, higher cost of capital, higher trend inflation and interest rates, higher friction, geopolitical and economic, um, and and more more in negotiation and tension required rather than this kind of picture of, I mean, I think part of the problem that people are so, in some quarters are so suspicious of globalization as they've experienced it in their life is that it was kind of the United States fighting with one hand tied behind its back. And sending all manufacturing to China. To say, exactly, to say so free trade is great, devastated. which free trade can be very beneficial if everyone participates in that game. But the sense, the critique is that the U.S. and the West generally participated in a free trade system. Mm-hmm. Other folks, including China, didn't. And it was an unequal match. And as a result, you have all these negative frictions. It's very interesting to me that what passes for a bipartisan consensus today in the United States anyway on China policy, pretty yeah. hawkish, pretty, pretty hawkish, yeah. Yeah. was extremely controversial. I mean, if we'd been here at this forum in, uh, in, in 2016... It was extremely one-sided. I mean, it was it was it was not consensus at all. Yeah. It's been a big shift, and I think when you go to that question to tie it back to the election, if I dare to tread there, the question on on democratic norms and the reason why those results are so close, I think. Well, I'll just ask it as a question: Is it possible that different audiences hear the phrase "democratic norms" to mean different things? It's very it's very common I hear when I speak to audiences on the West Coast or audiences on the East Coast. To, when, when, when you know folks in those places hear democratic norms and they think about some set of values and some set of ideas, and including are those are well certain folks if they just had the, the information that I have if they weren't under the 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 the, the allure or the illusion of all this misinformation then they would be enlightened and they would have the opinions that I have. But if you go to the middle of the country, you mentioned Kansas City, yeah. there's a Super Bowl coming up. <laughs> um, that's not relevant to anything. I just have to say <laughs> the, the the same phrase and the same ideas may attach to very different values. And then in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the polarization that gets talked about so much, usually in the context of so-called misinformation, I would suggest to do is, mu- is about much deeper, more closely held values that can't be solved through regulation or a tweak to the news algorithm. Marl, please. Just quickly, I think we agree on much more than... Uh than uh, initially, I think, uh, you know, what was being suggested. Uh, but regarding this issue of uh, the democratic norms, look, uh, the way a typical, you know, um, unconditional Trump voter sees the situation is that Trump is actually fighting for democracy because the election was stolen. So I can perfectly understand why that uh, Wall Street Journal survey said that um, there's no difference whatsoever in terms of uh, which of the two sides is... Um, protecting democratic norms, because both sides actually believe, for very different reasons, that they are preserving American democracy. Trump voters believe that Trump is actually fighting for the survival and the future of American democracy because the election was stolen. Mm-hmm. And every single fight he's in, in, engaged in, I'm, I'm just describing the situation, don't get me wrong, right? Every single uh, argument that they make uh, is about how Trump in the courts in the election, everywhere, is essentially defending American democracy because the election was stolen. You have to begin there. I, if I you believe that the election was stolen, then Trump is your yeah, I think, I think champion a, of democracy. It, I think it's a valid observation. It, it doesn't necessarily help us predict where things are going. No, of course. It's a valid observation. That, but that's the way they think. Before I um, – um, thank you for your questions. I, I'm, now re- I'm now ready to go with them. But it occurs to me that I'm a little confused on something, Jared, and maybe others are too. Could you just – um, one more time, what is this 2% versus 5% figure that you're referring to? Is this global economic growth? Global, well, let's say global economic inflation. Yeah. Inflation. On a, on a trend basis, I don't mean the bit, you still have business cycles. Sometimes the Fed hikes, sometimes they cut. Mm-hmm. There's recessions, there's mm. booms and busts. But if you, you average everything out and draw a line through it, over the past 20 years, you've seen extremely low yeah. inflation, extremely low interest rates. But if you look, zoom out over the broader sweep of history, 
And those numbers are all meaningfully higher on a trend basis. And if that's true, then all of our financial assets gradually would need to be repriced. And a lot of our economic activity could change, get repriced down. But, but if it's just because it's repriced doesn't mean that the dynamics among and between the players needs to change, or does it? Do you see my point? So, so you've made the case that – I've made the case that the, this low uh, interest rate environment of the past 20 to 40 years was extremely good for multinational corporations and for people in rich countries. Mm-hmm. But so jack everything up 3%, it, then there, there's still profits to be made. The, the, the advantages still accrue to the people in the rich countries, don't they? There, there's, a, there's profits to be made, but just in different ways and in, in, in some different places. Uh, a, a project that's not going to return capital to investors for 30 years, let's say a venture capital mm-hmm. you know, startup or something, mm-hmm. or a venture capital fund for that matter, right. um, can get by and can do incredibly well if capital is essentially free the way that it has been for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. But you suddenly raise the cost of capital, you know, interest rates, inflation, everything structurally higher. Those projects had better become much more profitable, much much Changing much a lot faster. of assumptions. Yep. You need, you need yep. you know, so it's from an investment's point of view, it's not growth <laughs> stocks, it's value stocks, it's not speculative yep. tech, it's real assets. Yeah, industry. Good. Okay, I've, I've got a lot of questions. I'm going to ask them quickly, and I'm going to just invite uh, whoever wants to jump in. Sometimes it will be obvious. Uh, first question. With, with the growing number of independents and growing dissatisfaction with candidates of both parties, can a strong third party ever emerge in this country? Um, I, I think, first of all, there are structural constraints. Um, ballot access has tended to be a big issue, which is why uh, if you followed the no labels effort, they've invested a lot of money in just trying to get on ballots, which, which I mean, it's very sounds very boring. But the mechanics of how states generally allowed the two major parties to control that process does tend to restrict the, the growth of third parties. Um, I, I think it is insufficient for people to feel dissatisfied with their two major party options. Let's put it that way. I don't think that that is that that is sufficient. Um, so, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, sufficient for the for the rise of a third party to That's become right. meaningful. That's mm-hmm. right. I mean, I think so. I think that you 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 have to have a real alternative. I mean, yep. we're talking about two altern two or three th- you know minor party alternatives or or independent alternatives, and then one theoretical alternative. It's very difficult to yep. determine what the market actually looks like until you know the name yep. behind the yep. third party movement. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, uh, Jared, uh, uh, a member of the audience wants to know, given the predictions for 2024 that you're talking about, how accurate were your 2023 predictions? <laughs> very frustrating. I love it. Yes. Yes. Um, very, right? I have so many ways to duck this question. One of which is to say that my, I have so many colleagues who class global research at B of A who are responsible for different forecasts, not myself personally. Um, we are the number one research department in in the in, in the industry, uh, according to the major you know polling organization. That's, that, that's a beauty contest, not a uh, not a not a match, really. not a quantum. Who's the, who the best beard? You know, and that yeah. sort of thing. Um, <laughs> no, but really, that's based on a voting poll, not a. No, uh, no, it's it's also capital committed. It's also there's real numbers. Uh-huh. Um, and my colleagues have been extremely accurate over any medium or long term time frame you want. Year to year, it's a little bit of a coin toss. Um, but last year, the consensus on Wall Street was we were set for a recession. And so most targets were extremely modest. The fact that you didn't have a recession and you had an incredibly enthusiastic market for anything attached to the phrase artificial intelligence meant <laughs> yeah. a huge run up in stocks last year that nobody anticipated, including my colleagues. To- totally fair. Uh, I believe, Nancy, this one is for you. Are you concerned? that increased housing density will negatively affect San Francisco's neighborhood character and harm tourism? Well, it has to be done properly. I mean, it's not like we're going to be putting in 50-story buildings anytime soon. But Berkeley is building a 24-story apartment building, and we need the housing. And it's got to be balanced with not just building blocks of houses, but having retail and work work environments that are close to housing, so a mix of property types. I don't think anybody is talking about building Levitt towns or building massive uh, apartment block centers with concrete and towers. It's more mixed use, close to transit, 
and close to places where people work, especially young people. We need workforce housing close to jobs. And that's what we're planning to build. Well, you know, it's funny. I I think I'm the only San Francisco resident on the panel. And I I can tell you that in San Francisco, where you stand depends on where you sit. And uh, anyway, I don't know if I I would say housing density will change the character of neighborhoods. I don't know if it will if if it will harm it, but it will change it for sure. Well, it'll bring people back to the streets. Yeah, that's the positive. That is the positive way of looking at it. Um, Anyone can answer this, but we'll ask Jared to go first. What will the Fed's rate be on January 1st, 2025? Federal funds rate is, I assume, what the question is. Remind yeah. everybody where it yeah. is today and what's your yeah. get so 2025. Five to five and a quarter is the yeah. range they have right now. Five to five and a quarter percent. Yep, percent. Yeah. Uh, the, the forecast from our, of our, our, our economists is that they'll cut three times this year. So mm-hmm. you'll get down to, to four and a quarter, basically four, four and a half percent range. And if I'm going to tell you where that number could be wrong, it's, it's a massive, massive, massive risk that in the second half of this year, inflation reaccelerates mm-hmm. and they... Mm. don't cut at all, mm-hmm. or maybe a handful of times. And I can tell you, we were talking about this before, yes. the, the bond market right now is pricing in six cuts, not three. Which is not- <laughs> so even our estimate, which is, I think, prone to pretty substantial risk of, of, of a revision if inflation is stickier and higher than people expect, is already more cautious than where the bond market is. So I'm just raising that as a massive red flag. If you own long-term treasury bonds, watch out. They are literally as volatile today as stocks are. Anyone else want to stick their neck out before we move on? No, I agree with him. Uh, Mara, maybe this is for you. Uh, what will the condition of the cryptocurrency oh. industry be yes. at the end of 2024? So I will answer the question, but let me preface my answer by saying that, um, so I teach about uh, this subject and uh, my undergraduates at Penn. Um, and uh, one day of class, I was uh, putting on the board all of my objections to uh, cryptocurrency like one after the other. And the best student in the class, he got an A+, plus, was sitting in the front row, and he raised his hand after I had finished putting all of my objections on the board. And he said something that I want you to remember. He told me, he got an A+, plus in the class. He told me, Professor, the problem here is that you're too old to understand the potential of cryptocurrency. I, too, have had this thrown at me. And responded. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to this day, I strongly believe that maybe he was right. No. That maybe I'm missing something, right? No. Uh, from this uh, crypto uh, world. So, look, first of all, I would say, and um, maybe you want to amend what I'm, I'm about to say, I think a cryptocurrency is a misnomer. I think we're talking about crypto assets to begin with. Because a currency is something that is used for, uh, you know, as a unit of account, as a means of payment, or as a store of value. And Bitcoin is neither of the above, right? And that is the most uh, widely used and uh, developed uh, cryptocurrency. So it's a crypto asset. It's a speculative crypto asset. So I would make two comments, right, that I think uh, are really important at this point. First is death by um, legitimacy. So there's been two very important events recently regarding the crypto world, regarding Bitcoin in particular. One is the approval by the SEC of um, uh, crypto currency, they use that terminology, EFTs. Mm-hmm. That means they're going to be regulated. That means, in my view, that's the beginning of the end. Mm. So cryptocurrency mm. will have a great future as long as they remain outside of the, right? The other one was, and I don't remember exactly when this happened, uh, maybe a year ago or two years ago, that we were all obligated by the IRS to report on our tax returns any transactions in crypto. So once again, um, is that a victory for crypto? I think it's a defeat. Mm-hmm. The more it becomes mainstream, the more it becomes uh, under the comes under the uh, uh, you know umbrella of regulation and all of that, <laughs> then the more it loses its revolutionary character, mm-hmm. right? The more it just loses its essence, and the more it will go through the bypass. I think you're right. I, I, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. No, off. no. Just just that the second the second idea is the prospect uh, for which brings us back to China of a central bank digital currencies. Mm. So uh, the uh, possibility that the Fed will launch a digital euro, um, I'm sorry, a digital dollar or the ECB, a digital euro, and so on and so forth. There are right now only three countries in the world that have launched uh, pilots on that, uh, like a, um, a fiat currency that is fiat currency that is uh, uh, digi- in digital form. So if I remember correctly, that's uh, Nigeria, uh, the Bahamas, mm-hmm. and the Eastern Caribbean Union. 
all of them really important countries in the global economy. Uh, China but, has a, a large pilot project. Exactly. The problem is China, right? Why are the Chinese so keen on exploring this? Because they want to bypass the dollar. We haven't yeah. talked about yeah, yeah. it. The Chinese are absolutely obsessed by the fact that they're already the largest trading nation in the world. They're about to become, if they're not already the largest economy, depends on how you, how you uh, convert one currency into another. But the dollar is still dominant. They hate that. They want to bypass the dollar. Okay. A few years ago, you can remind us as to what year, they launched this initiative of um, uh, entering into uh, swap arrangements with a number of countries in the world so that they could bypass the dollar, right? Mm -hmm. That hasn't worked. So now their next big bet is, and it's an explicit uh, goal of the current five-year plan in mm -hmm. China, is to have a digital renminbi. Okay. I want I want to hear from Jared and Nancy in that order on, on this question of cryptocurrency. Yeah, but the problem is, just, just to finish that thought, is that what scares the hell out of the U.S., Europe, and the U.K. is that China will be first to that. Right. And well, so there's an arms race going. It doesn't scare the Fed, oh, for course. example, enough that it's doing anything about it. Oh, there's right? a pilot. They're studying, they're studying. There's a pilot. All of the big banks are participating. No, no. I'm about the, it. Yep. talking about a digital dollar and the Fed. They're, they're studying this. No, there's a pilot. Washington. There's a wholesale pilot. Yeah, there is. There's a wholesale pilot. Uh, yeah. and your bank is a participant in that. The banks, by the way, would be destroyed by this. And that's why they're participating in the pilots, because they want to either delay the whole thing or they want to learn about uh, what would happen. The, would the dollar is already digital. I mean, well, it's been digital since the 1960s. Right. Yeah. I think the most commercial bank money. The reason that cryptocurrency is, is important uh, is exactly the reason you identify because it tells us that if you think about globalization, just that word, let's just accept for the sake of argument for the moment, a definition, the unchecked flow of people, goods, and capital around the world. Yeah. Un unchecked flows, okay? Yeah. But well, we know that flows of goods are contested in different ways. That's the, from go anywhere you want, do whatever you want. Now it's all trade tariffs and fights and everything else. It will be for a long time. Flows of people. The U.S. is one of the very few places in the world, and that certainly I think maybe the only country in the developed world that has birthright citizenship and the kind of relaxed immigration regime, even when Trump was in office, that, that we have. Most developed countries have a much, much tighter immigration mm -hmm. re regime, yeah. even very so-called progressive countries. Flows of people can, you know, no longer, it's very contested. And then the last domino to fall, flows of capital, yeah. which you have not seen in the West become ob objects of debate. But let me just point out, the one fact that people tend to skip about China, and I will never believe that China is in a position to become a dominant, you know, competitor to the West, mm -hmm. is until they can lift capital controls outbound from yes. the country. Until right. they do that, right. it's just all... A, a fun parlor game. Jared, sorry, before I come to Nancy, what is B of A doing on the new, the new uh, newly allowed Bitcoin ETFs? Uh, ETF, you mean? Yeah, ETFs. Yeah. ETFs. Um, there, there are a lot of, including including uh, you know Merrill and and lots of other folks in the industry. Uh, yeah, you can you can trade them Products. if you want to if you want to buy them. You can. But you're not creating one the way Black BlackRock did. Oh no no no. And but you're also not banning them the way not banning them. You're not you are allowing them ra uh, as opposed to what Vanguard is doing. Right. They're not they're not blocked. You know they're permitted. Look, to be honest with you. If for the last couple of years, if a, if a person wanted to buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin, they could for 50 to 70 cents through a couple of different vehicles in the public listed market. Right, right, right. Today, the SEC approved some products that now allow you to buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin for a dollar. And people are losing their minds with excitement. Yeah. <laughs> well, where were they for the past two years? You could have had a deal. I don't see, I don't think there's any economic, meaningfully economic benefit to to the, the sort, of, sort of stuff. Just, just one thing that I, I think is really important in, in, in this whole uh, you know, conversation about uh, currencies and the dollar. We don't realize in the United States how good we're having it because we have the dollar. We just don't realize it, right? We are so much better off because the dollar is the world's dominant international currency and reserve currency. We reap so many benefits from that. It's just well, that incredible. Well, what, what's what's one? What is a benefit to the lower US consumer that lower uses the dollar? Borrowing costs are lower substantially, yes, exactly. It's about interest rates. Because you have all of the And I did bring this up before, but why Janet is going to China is where 
you know, we want to keep the dollar, the reserve currency, for exactly this reason, so that the trading flows are to our advantage. And China has tried in so many ways in the commodity. Yeah, they don't markets. like it, of course. No, they don't like it. And they are yeah. thinking of whatever. But, but they you said, sorry, but the, the, the lower interest rates benefits people who already have capital. A, we, a, a strong dollar hurts people who are manufacturing. If I'm if I'm trying to if I'm a strong dollar, I'm talking well, about the fact strong, that reserve capital. currency, it strong dollar. in terms of security are it helps owners of capital. It hurts manufacturers. It hurts exports. It hurts yeah. the middle of the country. Well, that contributed to the uh, global value change that we were talking about earlier. Okay, That's so part the, of the overall. Picture. So the reason why a more balanced, more diversified global trading regime and globalization generally that would be good can help. We're not just the coasts where the capital is, but also the center where the manufacturing and other lots of other things. But it also affects the mortgage market, and that's the entire middle class of the United States. So the message so, here for all of you that I want you to take away is don't be embarrassed if you're confused by economic policy. <laughs> because economists are confused. Well, there are, there are five opinions on this panel, right? That's right. But, but just, just, just one thing that I think is really important about this whole dollar thing. The only, maybe you disagree with me. The only reason why the U.S. dollar continues to be so strong and so widely regarded and so widely used in the world is not because Washington is an orderly you know, place. political place. It's not because we have fiscal discipline. It's not because a number of things that normally produce these globally dominant currencies. It's because there is no alternative to the U.S. dollar right now. Completely different from what happened in the 1920s when pound sterling was getting into the same kinds of problems. Mm. Yes. But there was an alternative, right? And, and then critically after 1944, right? Uh, so there's no alternative to the dollar. Everybody knows that. It's not because the dollar is not on the top of the world, not because it's a strong currency. I want to get to an no alternative. We just have a few minutes left. Another question from the audience. And um, Lonnie, maybe this is for you. Maybe you don't want it. Um, the question is, did Trump create or inherit an economic boom? What would four more years of Trumpist economic policy bring? Um, look, I think that there that there were. Um, well, there were a lot of things that happened during that presidency. I mean, the it, and, and there were some exogenous shocks. I mean, the, the pandemic being the most obvious one that that was. Uh, unexpected i think but the um i think that there were that there were positive policy interventions that happened during that administration um they weren't all positive but i do think that the question is really would he pursue similar interventions in a second term and you know i think the answer is that he's inherently unpredictable so a lot of people want to know you know how would he approach trade policy as an example. I think that's probably the one area where we have a little bit more evidence about how he views the world because I think he's been relatively consistent in his in his more restrictionist views. But if you if you set that aside, I think there's a lot of areas where it it frankly I think is very difficult to predict. I mean, one of the things that I've thought about recently is you know, some of you may be aware that for the first time in US history really extensively in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a provision to negotiate the price of pharmaceuticals that gives government, uh, gives the federal government, you know, more more direct negotiating power. And someone theorized recently, well, if Trump comes in, he's going to get rid of it. And I actually disagree with that completely. Uh, I, I actually think that his, first of all, he has a very dim view of pharmaceutical companies to start with. But second of all, I think he's likely actually to continue and, if anything, expand that regime. Because he sees political benefit in so doing, so it, it, it's hard for me to give a lot of credence to the relatively sort of facile descriptions of what Trump's economic policy would be. Because let's be honest, none of us really know what his economic policy is going to be, right? So, what the impacts will be on the economy, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to tell. But the but what I do know is that there's enough that's unconventional in terms of him and how he thinks that it, it's very difficult for us to sit here and say that the next four years would look like the first four years. I, I just think there's enough differences in, for example, who he puts around him. The composition of the Congress is very different. The median Republican in the Congress in 2025 will look very different than the median Republican was in 2017. 
So there's a lot of reasons to believe that these next four years would look substantially different than what the first term looked like. Well, with um, with that very good answer to a very to a very smart question from the audience, um, I'd like to thank Lan He Chen, David, and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, Mauro Guyen. Close enough. Go ahead. William H. Worcester, Professor of Multinational Management and Vice Dean of the MBA Program for Executives at the Wharton School. Nancy Wallace, Professor and Chair of the Real Estate Group and Co-Chair at the Fisher Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics at Berkeley Haas. And Jared Woodard, Head of Research of the Research Investment Committee and Global Investment Strategist at Bank of America Merrill Lynch Global Research. If you would like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Adam Lashinsky. Thank you very much, and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.